Before I start this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels who took the photograph which adorns the cover art. Let's crack on. episode 87 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Chris Cobride. Now, I thought previous weeks had been busy and that things would ease down as we got deeper into December, but it's almost as if these things are sent deliberately to try us, for it's been a massive week for financial crime. Get set for the longest episode ever with all aspects of financial crime pumping out stories. As usual, I've linked the main stories which I flag right there in the podcast description, and believe me, there are plenty of them. We'll start this week's episode with, as we usually do, sanctions, where we go to the United States, where the Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC, has sanctioned a former Guatemalan government official for engaging in public corruption. Luis Miguel Martinez Morales, quotes, engaged in widespread bribery schemes, including schemes related to government contracts. His designation is pursuant to Executive Order 13818, which builds upon and implements the global Magnitsky Human Rights Accountability Act and targets perpetrators of serious human rights abuse and corruption around the world. In other news of sanctions relating to corruption, the US Department of State has sanctioned a former Deputy Prime Minister of North Macedonia, Kocho Angjushev. Sure, I've mangled that pronunciation. He is, as the press release provides, someone who abused his position, his official position, to benefit his private business interests, undermining the confidence of North Macedonia's public in their government institutions and public processes. The US Department of State has also announced a reward for information leading to the arrest and or conviction of Artem Alexandrovich Us, a Russian national, following an announcement last October, quotes, of a 12-count criminal indictment returned by a federal grand jury in the Eastern District of New York against Us and six other co-defendants. Us was charged with four counts. First, conspiracy to defraud a department or agency of the United States. Secondly, conspiracy to violate the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. Thirdly, conspiracy to commit bank fraud. And fourthly, conspiracy to commit money laundering for the Oil Smuggling and International Emergency Economic Powers Act scheme. Us allegedly orchestrated a transnational fraud, smuggling and money laundering operation in part through a privately held industrial equipment and commodity trading company located in Hamburg, Germany. As owners of the company, Us and another co-conspirator reportedly engaged in a variety of activities in violation of US criminal laws and U.S. and other sanctions, including 1. The unlawful export of millions of U.S. dollars in military and sensitive dual-use technologies from the United States to Russia, and 2. The use of the U.S. financial system to facilitate the smuggling of millions of barrels of oil from Venezuela. Finally, OFAC has announced sanctions against eight foreign-based Democratic People's Republic of Korea, North Korea, agents that facilitate sanctions evasion, including revenue generation and missile-related technology procurement that support the DPRK's weapons of mass destruction programs. 
Additionally, OFAC sanctioned cyber espionage group Kim Suki for gathering intelligence to support the DPRK's strategic objectives. Links to all four press releases can be found in the podcast description. In the European Union, the European Council has announced the extension of the EU global human rights sanction regime for a period of three years, with an expiry date which is now the 8th of December 2026. Sanctions currently apply to 67 national natural rather, and legal persons and 20 entities. Those targeted by restrictive measures are subject to a travel ban to the European Union, as well as an asset freeze. Additionally, persons and entities in the EU are forbidden from making funds available to those listed. Link to the Council of the European Union press release is in the podcast description. In the UK, the National Crime Agency working with agency partners, has issued a red alert to financial institutions warning that Russian businesses are, quote, attempting to circumvent sanctions to purchase restricted goods and services through intermediary countries. This is something which we've actually trailed uh, on the Financial Crime Weekly podcast over recent episodes. The document issued on Wednesday this week provides a number of possible red flags, 14 in fact, with a reminder that no single red flag is necessarily indicative of illicit or suspicious activity. Link to the document is, of course, in the podcast description. In terms of the UK government's designations relating to Russia and Belarus, these have been updated this week, with 46 entries added to the consolidated list, 45 from Russia and 1 from Belarus. The link to both notices can be found in the podcast description. Next, the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation has added two further names to the cyber financial sanctions, namely Andrei Stanislovich Koronets and Ruslan Alexandrovich Pertiatko, there we go, who are believed to have, quotes, been involved in cyber activity which undermines or is intended to undermine the integrity, prosperity or security of the United Kingdom or a country other than the United Kingdom something that directly or indirectly causes or is intended to cause economic loss to or prejudice to the commercial interests of those affected by the activity. It undermines or is intended to undermine the independence or effective functioning of an international organisation or a non-governmental organisation or forum whose mandate or purpose is related to the governance of international sport or the internet or otherwise affects a significant number of persons in an indiscriminate manner. Or at least that is the spiel that came with the notice accompanying this announcement. Specifically, however, this is linked to alleged interference with the British political system and its processes. Particularly, they're said to have targeted politicians, civil servants, journalists, non-governmental organisations and other civil society organisations. The link to the notice from the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation with the and the multi-departmental government press release, as well as the link to the Cyber Financial Sanctions page, can be found in the podcast description. And another, late in the week, OFSI also made 46 additions to the consolidated list, specifically for the Belarus, Global Human Rights, Syria and Iran human rights sanctions regimes. Link to the updated consolidated list is in the podcast description. And finally... OFSI issued a general licence quite late in the day last week relating to payments to local authorities, and I've linked that 
in the podcast description as well. Now, the final bit of sanctions news this week is a bit of an update. It seems that the Group of Seven industrialized nations will sanction Russian diamonds from January 2024. There's been a bit of international toing and froing on this one, and we've noted the toing and froing that's been going on within the European Union on this over recent weeks and months. But it does look certainly like diamonds aren't forever. They've got the rest of December and maybe a bit of January, and then it's curtains. Now, that's it for sanctions news to fraud news this week, which starts in the United Kingdom with a significant announcement from the UK government which has published an online fraud charter. The arrangement is a voluntary agreement between the government and the technology sector with the aim of reducing fraud. The use of platforms, principally social media platforms, as a means of perpetrating fraud is something which we have addressed on the Financial Crime Weekly podcast for such a long time. In fact, I took a look back through the archive. Yes, indeed, there is an archive now. And this issue was raised first in episode 9, then in 57, 61, 63 and 67 when there was a bit of a flurry of activity. So it might be said that it's good to see something is finally being done about it. Under the charter, the signatories, the usual suspects, Amazon, eBay, Facebook, Google, Instagram, LinkedIn, Match Group, Microsoft, Snapchat, TikTok, X or Twitter and YouTube, they're all the signatories, have agreed to adopt certain measures within six months. These measures are first blocking to deploy measures to detect and block fraudulent material. Secondly, reporting have a simple and quick route to report fraudulent material. Three, takedowns take action against fraudulent content and users straight away. Advertising deploy measures to protect people from fraudulent adverts. There's an awful lot of very suspicious adverts on these platforms. Law enforcement, fifth or fifth, law, impo- law enforcement, have dedicated liaisons who will respond to law enforcement requests. Six, intelligence sharing, engage with initiatives quickly to share information about fraud. Seven, transparency, provide information about fraud risks and what is being done to address them. When do we get to? I think we're at eight now. Eight. Comms deliver simple messaging to support the public to recognise and avoid online fraud. And nine. Horizon scanning. They love a bit of horizon scanning. Contribute to horizon scanning exercises to stay ahead of the threat. You can meet, read more about it in the form of the press release and the charter itself at the links in the podcast description. Staying with the UK, a couple of fraud cases have been reported first. Our good old friend, COVID-19 fraud, where a builder from Hounslow has been convicted to 20 months imprisonment, suspended for two years, for fraudulently obtaining a £50,000 bounce-back loan scheme loan in 2020 after he misrepresented the turnover of his business in the previous tax year. Finally, the Crown Prosecution Service in in England and Wales has announced the imprisonment of a former hotel manager for cheque fraud amounting to almost £2 million. That kind of fraud presumably will start going down in the history book soon, if not already. Links to both press releases are in the podcast description. And finally, from the UK this week, that's not the end of it, just the UK, the Serious Fraud Office has raided the premises of AOG Technics Limited 
as it launched an investigation into allegations of fraud at the aircraft parts supplier. The SFO and the National Crime Agency are involved in the process, and I think this is certainly one to follow. Link to the SFO press release is in the podcast description. Now, as we're on fraud, we couldn't really do any of the fraud stories without turning to the US, which again has not let the side down with the sheer scale of its fraud stories. We'll start once again with an old friend. First, the Department of Justice has announced that a woman from Baton Rouge has been sentenced for various schemes designed to support the post-COVID recovery in the US. Tira R. Lands of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, has been sentenced to 48 months in federal prison following her convictions for wire fraud and money laundering in connection with numerous false and fraudulent applications that she filed to obtain funds from the Paycheck Protection Program, PPP, and the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program in 2020 and 2021. The court ordered lands to pay $858,726.11 in restitution and forfeit an additional $138,212. Upon her release from federal prison, Lands would also be required to serve a three-year term of supervised release. Previously in the investigation, the United States successfully seized a significant share of the proceeds from the offences, a residence in Baton Rouge, and two vehicles, including a 2023 Mercedes-Benz G550 and a 2019 Infiniti Q60. Secondly, a Texan who created a church to obtain by fraud a car and COVID-19 loans has been sentenced to eight years imprisonment. Thirdly, a former employee of the Internal Revenue Service, the IRS in the US, has pleaded guilty to fraud on the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program, part of, again, the Coronavirus Aid, Relief and Economic Security Act. According to court documents, Brian Salisbury of Memphis, Tennessee, was employed by the IRS as a program evaluation and risk analyst in the Human Capital Office. Salisbury submitted false EIDL applications and obtained $171,400 in loan funds. After obtaining the fraudulent loan funds, Salisbury transferred the funds to his personal checking account. He then used the loan funds for purposes not authorised by the EDIL programme, but instead transferred $100,000 to an investment account knowing that the property involved in the transaction was derived from unlawful activity. He's scheduled to be sentenced on the 5th of April 2024. And we're nearly at the end of these, <laughs> this round of American fraud. In fact, I dropped a few dead donkeys on this one because there was so much. Fourthly, again in Baton Rouge, perhaps there's something in the water in the bayou. Anyway, Brad Paul Schaefer has been charged in connection with a $148 million Medicare and Medicaid fraud. Fifthly, for again from the US, more Medicare fraud, with news that a doctor from Ohio has been charged with a fraud amounting to about $14 million. And finally, this one came in quite late in the week. The Securities and Exchange Commission has charged five unregistered brokers as well as four companies with a pre-IPO fraud scheme which brought about $525 million in unregistered offerings, netting defendants more than $88 million in illicit profits from undisclosed fees. Links to all those press releases in all of those cases can be found in the podcast description and 
Frankly, I expect an awful lot more of those fraud cases from the US again in next week's episode. To Europe now. Europol has announced that 11 counterfeit olive oil producers have been arrested. The arrests took place in Spain and Italy, with fake olive oil being described as, quote, a common practice in the press release. It continues, quote, In this food fraud operation, investigators uncovered that the criminals used a so-called lapante oil, apologies for the accent, the lower quality variant of olive oil to dilute their product. Lapante oil, or olive oil, Lepante olive oil is characterized by elevated acidity levels, an undesirable flavor, and a distinctly unpleasant odor, which makes it unsuitable for consumption. The term lampante itself originates from its historical use as a fuel in oil lamps. Well, there you go, every day is a school day. A mix of various factors, such as the general inflation of prices, reduced olive oil production, and increasing demand, have created the perfect breeding ground for fraudulent producers. Mixing consumer-grade olive oil with lower-grade alternatives allowed the criminals to offer competitive prices while entering legal supply chains. This illegal practice can not only cause a public health risk but also undermine consumer trust and thus have further economic repercussions. Link to the press release, which contains a mildly diverting YouTube video, can be found in the podcast description. And finally, on fraud this week, we turn to various institutions of the European Union, beginning with news from the Parliament of the European Union, which has stated that the bloc should do more to detect, prevent and recover fraudulently used funds. The context was the adoption by the Budgetary Control Committee of its annual anti-fraud report for 2022, quotes, evaluating the efforts in the EU to counter fraud and how to better protect EU funds. In the report adopted on Monday by 17 votes in favour, none against and two abstentions, the Budgetary Control Committee stresses the great risk to the EU's financial interests posed by nepotism used when procuring EU funds. The text put out by the committee also expressed concern respecting the oversight of funds channelled to Ukraine to support the country since the start of the Russian invasion, noting that there was particular concern that funds are, quote, not adequately monitored and controlled and calling on the Commission to, quote, carry out more thorough checks to ensure the EU funds end up going to those most in need. Link to the press release from the European Parliament is in the podcast description. The next story comes from the European Payments Council, the EPC, which um, has published its annual update of the Payment Threats and Fraud Trends report, which contributes to creating awareness, quotes, on payment threats and fraud trends, and to help payment stakeholders decide on possible actions to prevent fraud. It provides a focus on recent attacks and an overview of the most important threats and other fraud enablers in the payments landscape, including social engineering, malware, advanced persistent threats, or APTs, distributed denial of service, or DDoS, botnets, third-party compromise, monetization channels, liability for social engineering fraud, and so on. A link to the updated report is in the podcast description. Now, that's it for this week's wealth of fraud news. Let's move on now to look at money laundering. 
This week's money laundering news starts in the United Kingdom, where the government has issued an advisory notice through His Majesty's Treasury relating to high-risk third countries. The update reflects the publication in October this year by the Financial Action Task Force of jurisdictions with strategic deficiencies in the anti-money laundering and countering the terrorist of financing regimes. We looked at that at the time, you may remember. The jurisdictions highlighted by the Financial Action Task Force, or the FATF, are now listed in Schedule 3ZA of the Money Laundering and Terrorist Financing High-Risk Countries Amendment No. 2 Regulations 2023, and they came into force on the 5th of December this week. Link to the press release from HM Treasury, together with a link to the statutory instrument containing the change, can be found in the podcast description. In North America, there are a couple of stories relating to money laundering. First, the Department of Justice has announced that in the US, that is, five individuals have been sentenced to terms of imprisonment for their parts in international drugs rings and a money laundering operation. The link is in the podcast description. Uh, Secondly, and following the recent news concerning Binance, the crypto exchange Bitslato has now also pleaded guilty to processing illicit funds. As the Department of Justice press release provides, Anatoly Legkodimov, a Russian national also known as Anatoly Legkodimov, Gandalf and Tolik, pleaded guilty to operating a money transmitting business that transported and transmitted illicit funds. The charges stem from Legkodimov's majority ownership of Bitslato Limited, a cryptocurrency exchange that served as a primary conduit for dark market purchasers and sellers, as well as a safe haven for ransomware criminals. As part of his plea agreement, Legkodimov agreed to dissolve Bitslato and to release any claim over approximately $23 million in seized assets of Bitslato. Link to that press release is in the podcast description. Finally, in Canada, the Royal Bank of Canada has been fined $7.4 million, presumably Canadian dollars, by the Financial Transactions and Reports Analysis Centre of Canada, or FinTrack, for its failure to comply with anti-money laundering and terrorist financing measures, particularly the following. First, failure to submit suspicious transaction reports where there were reasonable grounds to suspect that transactions were related to a money laundering offence. Secondly, failure to provide information in the prescribed form and manner in suspicious transactions reports. And finally, thirdly, failure to keep written policies and procedures up to date. In other news in Canada, an investigation by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police has uncovered a crypto money laundering scheme linked to illegal drug production link to both press releases from FinTrack and from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police can be found in the podcast description. Now, just a bit of a minor money laundering story before I highlight some reading to keep you busy over the remainder of the weekend. Uh, Europol has, acting in concert with a range of other agencies, disrupted a money laundering scheme with the particular target being 10,759 money mules and 474 recruiters. Now, we've covered money mules many times on the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, 
particularly elder, genera elder generation money mules looking to earn a few quid because their pension isn't cutting the mustard. Well, looks like Europol is trying to do something about it with this action. The link to the press release, which contains a rather clamorous infographic, is in the podcast description. Now, some reading to end your weekend on a high and to take you into the working week next week. First, a blog post from the website Spotlight on Corruption concerning the accountancy industry and money laundering. The post reflects on whether the system as it is at the moment, in advance of any possible reforms, is working as effectively as it might be. Secondly, a post on the Transparency International website focusing on the facilitation of illicit flows to continental Africa. Thirdly, the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, has published its 2023 review of its anti-money laundering and combating the financing of terrorism strategy. Quotes, the paper reviews the fund's efforts to safeguard financial integrity and proposes the way forward for the fund's anti-money laundering and combating the financing of terrorism strategy. The paper takes stock of the implementation of the IMF's AML and CFT strategy since 2018. It also proposes deepening the integration of international integrity issues and an enhanced focus on the macroeconomic impact of AML and CFT issues for the way forward. Link to all three of those documents can be found in the podcast description. Now, fourthly, just a quick one before we end. One more report that again came out towards the end of the week. It's from the International Regulatory Strategy Group, which is a kind of group of organisations, including law firms and so on. It's published a report on its anti-money laundering, uh, on anti-money laundering and beneficial ownership. The report examines quotes the current global guidance on beneficial ownership and reviewing global beneficial ownership regimes and seeks to establish how effective the current regime is, where best practices can be shared and where further work needs to be done to tackle global regulatory fragmentation and to promote greater transparency. The report does so by looking at a number of case studies, the tension between combating AML and ensuring data privacy, the effectiveness of Companies House, the interplay between beneficial ownership transparency and financial transactions, or sanctions rather, it outlines seven recommendations for a globally transparent and effective beneficial ownership regime. The link to it is in the podcast description. Now that's it for money laundering. On to bribery and anti-corruption. Now this week's bribery and anti-corruption news starts with Entain PLC, the owner of Coral and Ladbrook's betting entities. Now, as we've mentioned in previous weeks, we've looked at this story a number of times, they have agreed a deferred prosecution agreement to DPA with the Crown Prosecution Service. Well, this week that was approved by Dame Victoria Sharp, President of the King's Bench Division at the Royal Courts of Justice, who was, uh, which was sitting as the Crown Court at Southwark. The DPA has been much trailed as I said, in recent weeks, and we've been storing, uh, following the story for a few months. Actually, I was looking again, I was looking back at the archive to see when we'd actually covered it. But news that it's finally been approved will mean the compliance function at Entain can continue to sharpen its focus to ensure that its corporate compliance obligations 
uh, well, the corporate compliance obligations which are imposed under the terms of the DPA are met. Entain has agreed, amongst other things, that it will make, quote, significant enhancement to its ethics and compliance program, including to strengthen its internal controls, policies and procedures regarding compliance with the Bribery Act 2010 and other applicable anti-corruption laws. Entain has also substantially implemented the recommendations of external group-wide compliance reviews conducted since December 2020, including in areas such as anti-corruption laws, anti-facilitation of tax evasion, anti-money laundering, countering terrorist financing, and payment processing and affiliate controls. Entail has, subsequently to the announcement of its new sustainability charter in November 2020, exited approximately 160 markets, presumably to de-risk. The quote ends of those approximately 140 were exited where there is no clear path to regulation. The link to the press release from the CPS, the summary judgment of the court, the copy of the DPA, well, they can all be found in the podcast description. Now, to a range of stories concerning bribery and public officials, The Guardian reports this week that following an investigation, more than 870 federal public servants were found to have acted corruptly over a period of six years. The corruption was confirmed by the Australian Public Service Commission, APSC, which has, partly in response, announced the creation of a new central team to investigate serious misconduct allegations in response to the robo-debt scandal. Link to the story from The Guardian is in the podcast description. In Ukraine, in Ukraine, we've reported variously over the past weeks, Ukraine has really been going hard on anti-corruption. And this week, the National Anti-Corruption Bureau of Ukraine and the Specialised Anti-Corruption Prosecutor's Office have identified four judges from the Kyiv Court of Appeal as being concerned in corruption valued at $35,000. One judge was the principal recipient of the funds, but that a portion of the fund was then distributed among brother judges. In the US, a former city commissioner has been sentenced to 30 months imprisonment for his part in a scheme to provide favourable treatment in the awarding of city engineering contracts in return for bribes. Link to the Department of Justice press release is in the podcast description. Finally, in Slovakia, the new Prime Minister Robert Fico, or Fico has announced that he intends to abolish the Special Prosecutor's Office, whose function is to combat high-level corruption and organised crime. Of course, it may be a bit of brinkmanship, as the European Union member state looks to leverage a little something extra from the coffers of the bloc, but if the plan does go ahead, then nothing can be more certain than that the Commission is not likely to take too kindly to the decision and may instigate proceedings and look to issue sanctions against that nation. The EU is very concerned with corruption at the moment and looking to clean up its image after all the various scandals, including Qatargate, which we've, of course, looked at on the podcast. Finally, a little light reading to mark International Anti-Corruption Day, which was on the 9th of December, and its importance. First of all, from the World Economic Forum and then a professional trade body within the UK. Well, actually, in England and Wales. Now, the World Economic Forum has quite a lengthy blog post packed with infographics and embedded YouTube videos, but it's well worth a read over the coming days. Allied to this in the UK, the Institute of Chartered Accountants in England and Wales has published a blog post on why fighting corruption is key 
to good governance. Link to both can be found in the podcast description. Now, a little bit on market abuse, then we'll round up the stories, some other stories in financial crime before the cyber news this week. So first, that bit of market abuse news, and it's from the United Kingdom, where the trial of brothers who are accused of fraud and insider dealing has started at Southwark Crown Court. The case, which is being brought by the Financial Conduct Authority, alleges that former Goldman Sachs analyst Mohamed Zina and his brother Sahail Zina are alleged to have traded in shares in six companies between July 2016 and December 2017, bringing about a profit of £142,000. The fraud charges relate to an allegedly fraudulently obtained loan from Tesco Bank, which was then used to fund the trades. The brothers deny the charges. Linked to the FCA press release from 2021 is in the podcast description, and the trial continues. It should be noted, I did think there was quite a lag, a time lag here, but it should be noted that the trial was relisted because of strike action, which was taken by criminal barristers in 2022. Now, quick roundup of other financial crime news before we look at this week's cyber news. This week's uh, roundup of other cyber Uh, Financial crime news, rather, starts in the US, where the Department of Justice has announced that the Swiss bank, Banque Pictet, has agreed a deferred prosecution agreement in the sum of almost $123 million, quotes, for conspiring with US taxpayers and others to hide more than $5.6 billion in 1,637 secret bank accounts in Switzerland and elsewhere to conceal the income generated in those accounts from the Internal Revenue Service. In an important follow-up for Pictet, the credit rating agency Fitch put out a press release indicating that the announcement had had no effect on the bank's credit rating and that it remained at AA-stable-F1+, whatever that means. link to the press release is in the podcast description. Now, a couple of pieces of anti-competitive practice. First, the Spanish Supreme Court has this week rejected the appeal by telecoms infrastructure provider Cellnex, which is said to have abused its dominant position by hindering competition in the digital terrestrial television market. The company will now have to pay the 13.7 million euro fine imposed by the regulator and against which it was appealing. The other case concerning abuse of market position comes from the UK and actions by supermarkets to limit local competition. Both Morrison's and Marks and Spencer broke laws relating to land use, which it exploited to prevent rival supermarkets opening shops near to existing shops which they had. The Competition and Markets Authority said it found 55 breaches by Morrisons and 10 breaches by Marks and Spencer. The link to the Competition and Markets Authority press release is in the podcast description. The Financial Conduct Authority in the UK has announced that it will not be taking enforcement action against NCM Fund Services Limited and Northern Provident Investments, which are the companies concerned in the financial promotions of Blackmore's mini-bonds. The bond scheme collapsed in 2020, causing losses of around £46 million to 2,000 investors. But the FCA, in a letter to the Treasury Select Committee, has stated that, quote, after looking in forensic detail at the financial promotions, our investigation concluded that these were largely accurate in what they set out and contained very relevant risk warnings to consumers. 
The letter, which has been published on the website of the Treasury Select Committee, is in the podcast description. I note in the general human interest stories that often pepper the press when something like this is announced, there is a lot of discontent with that announcement, but you can have a look for some of that yourself. Still in the UK, the Gambling Commission has launched an online confidential reporting service whereby individuals can report such as match-fixing and sports betting integrity, underage gambling, money laundering concerns, suspicious activity, unlicensed gambling or criminal activity. The new service provides a one-stop service, allowing users anonymously to upload supporting information connected to their report, such as photographs and documents. Users can also send further information by email or post. There's also an option for users to share contact information should they wish to be contacted about the information they provide. The link to that is in the podcast description. The final bit of news is a further direction to a little light reading again from the International Monetary Fund, which has been pumping out things this week. It's published a blog article on how more must be done to understand and circumscribe financial crimes because of the damage which they do to economies. The link is in the podcast description. And finally, this week's mammoth financial crime weekly podcast has its usual roundup of cyber attack news. And again, there's a decent wedge of this to keep us interested. We start in the United Kingdom, where news that a cyber attack may have been carried out on the Sellafield Nuclear Waste Processing Storage and Nuclear Decommissioning Site in Cumbria in northwest England. It's on the Cumbrian coast. If you've ever visited the Lake District in England and Wales and climbed some of the remoter, the more remote, I suppose, um, summits on in the western lakes like Scoffell and Scoffell Pike and so on, you'll have seen it there looking resplendent in the distance. Well, the Guardian and other news services have indicated that malware may have been detected in the software systems used at the plant as long ago as 2015, but there has been little to no coverage of the story up to this point. Sellafield has denied that there was any form of cyber attack, but this hasn't stopped the Labour Party, which is the official opposition in the United Kingdom, from seeking assurances over the safety of Sellafield from the government the industry regulator, and from the site itself. Now, the Parliament and the Council of the European Union have reached agreement on the adoption of new legislation proposed last year by the Commission, which will enhance the cybersecurity measures which manufacturers of household products with internet connectivity must have in order to be sold within the bloc. The Cyber Resilience Act concerns the cyber safety of a range of everyday use items such as televisions, refrigerators, smartwatches, gaming devices and so on. Though still subject to formal approval by the Parliament and the Council, this should follow in coming weeks or months, after which it will become law across the block. Now in a follow-up to a story we covered in last week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast, the Resida Cybergroup has threatened to release the royal family's medical data, which has been obtained or was obtained in a recent cyber attack on the King Edward VII Hospital in London. The private hospital is one favoured by the royal family. The group has posted it and it wants £300,000 in Bitcoin or the information will be released to the dark web. Staying in the UK, the insurance company Aviva has published some research into the impact and extent of cyber attacks on UK business. 
Key takeaways from the research are that one-fifth of businesses have been the victim of a cyber attack in the last 12 months, and that businesses are 67% more likely to be the victim of a cyber attack than of a physical theft. This is not particularly unsurprising. It's not an unsurprising shift in the threat which businesses face since the logistics of conducting a physical theft are certainly greater than those needed for a cyber attack. Of some concern from the research is the news that despite the increase in the threat, 20% of businesses do not know what to do should a cyber attack occur. There's clearly some scope for public education, and I know some organisations do offer guidance, particularly the Cybersecurity Centre in the UK. Alternatively, if you're feeling a bit a bit entrepreneurial, there's a niche business to set up. A bit of a marketing game needed there, possibly, for a price, of course. Finally, the average claim for a cyber attack is around £21,000, and this can be from ransomware, malware, or phishing or smishing. As the research is quite interesting, I've linked it in the podcast description. Now, before this week's final story, just a quick jump to the other side of the pond, to the US, where the Office of the Controller of Currency, the OCC, has published a semi-annual report identifying the key issues facing the federal banking system in the US. Of note, for present purposes, the report identifies that operational risk is elevated. Quote, cyber threats continue... Banks continue to leverage new technology to further digitalization efforts, offering innovative products and services to meet customer demands. Increasing digitalization efforts can also heighten risk of fraud and error, including fraud targeting peer-to-peer and other faster payment platforms. Link to the press release, worth looking at because it does cover other things, not just cyber, is... Uh, as well, well, the press release contains a link to the report, which is in the podcast description. And finally, before I go and get myself something liquid this week, the National Cyber Security Centre in the UK has launched a cyber incident exercising scheme, quotes, giving organisations access to NCSC-assured exercising providers for the first time. The scheme assures companies to deliver two types of cyber exercises – Tabletop, which is discussion-based sessions where participants talk about their roles and responsibilities, activities, and key decision points in line with their organization's incident response plan for a pre-agreed scenario. Live play, where sessions where participants carry out their roles and responsibilities in close to real time in response to a controlled feed of information representing a pre-agreed scenario like a war game, really. Live play exercises are best suited to mature organisations looking for in-depth validation of plans. Link to the National Cyber Security Centre press release is in the podcast description. Well, that's it for this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me all being well next week with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a great week, everyone.